0: stay standing for the authority of God's Word. Uh, We like to remain standing so that we know that the proper respect is due for God's Word because we believe it is uh, living and active and so we want to have our lives underneath it so we stand out of reverence. If you grab your worship guide, you're going to see the reference. It is not printed, so you'll have to actually pull out your real Bible uh, to get that reference, uh, Luke chapter 6. And then there's a little sentence in bold that we love for everyone to Uh, repeat afterwards that we just kind of we step into this moment with reverence so this is the word of god according to luke chapter 6 43 and following for no good tree bears bad fruit nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit for each tree is known by its own fruit for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from, bramble, from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart of the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do as what I tell you? For everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house, it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great." And let us all say together. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, this week is Palm Sunday, and so as we've referenced already, this is the beginning of, on the Christian calendar, the most important week of uh, our year. Uh, so today is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of a wonderful week, and seven days from now we will celebrate that Christ is risen, risen indeed. We will uh, want you to reference Friday night. We do have a good Friday service um, There will be no jokes. Uh, There will be very little light. It's actually a pretty dark day on purpose. Um, So we will come together. Uh, We will gather and to remember what Jesus has done for us. So whatever you're doing on Friday, we would really encourage you to do that. Now, we are in the series called the Realia of Food and Drink. Uh, We're trying our best to get as much out of the the Gospel of Luke as possible. And so what we've done is we've cherry-picked all of these passages that refer back to food and drink. At the end of chapter 6, you come to Luke's version of what we call the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus's most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. That's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where he was literally up on a mountain preaching a similar sermon. He actually is now down on the plain and he's teaching it, but they're similar undertones, but they're very different. And so here at the end of chapter 6, we are at the end of Luke's version of what we call the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is the greatest preacher, teacher of all time. I mean, even if you're a secular historian, you look to Jesus and you're like, man, that guy could captivate the world. I mean, the way he spoke and the analogies that he gave, he was very provocative in the things that he said. He really was able to gut punch both those people who were far from him and those people who were supposed to, to uh, follow him completely. He uses analogies and he uses examples. He uses everyday reality to get our attention. So how does the Sermon on the Plains end? With two wonderful word pictures. And so like a good preacher, he gives us these examples. He gives us these pictures because what he wants us to hear abundantly clear, what is it like to follow me? So the Sermon on the Plain is to the crowds. There's a big crowd that has assembled. And yet the words of the sermon was pointed to what it says at the very beginning, the disciples, particularly these newly appointed 12 who are no longer disciples, but are now called apostles. He's looking at them and saying, I know that you are following me, but now I'm gonna push against it and give you some reasons why you should. And so he gives almost the impossible mandate. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to breathe. And this is how you are to follow me. And he doesn't make it easy. Instead, he makes it hard. So as he ends this sermon with very hard words, he gives us pretty uh, easy to understand pictures. First and foremost, he gives us a picture from agriculture, all right? So these are just the, the way that we see the world. There's grass and trees and the world and just all of the cycles of life. So he says, you and I have been looking at this world for a long time. And so I'm going to give you a picture of, uh, from agriculture. And so what he wants to do is he, these are hard words and these are hard preaching, but he wants to point to something very, very crystal clear, something very obvious. So this is axiomatic by nature, meaning there's no question whatsoever. It's black and white. It's clear. It's logical. He's just pointing to it. And everyone around us kind of says, of course. Not only is it obvious, but he sprinkles a little bit of humor with this passage. Some of you have probably never laughed out loud at this passage, but it is quite humorous because it is so obvious. And he's just saying, okay. So when I was in middle school, we would just say, duh. And I don't even know what duh means, right? But that's what we would say when we were like, Of course you should know that. And so this is Jesus's kind of mantra in this passage. He's not trying to be Nate Bargatsky funny, right? He's just not like overly funny as a comedian, but he's using some irony. He's using some things to go, even you and I would be able to do that. What does he do? He points to a fruit tree. There's apples on apple trees, right? And you guys go. You know? And then there's oranges on oranges tree, right? You know, like, okay, where are you going with this one? And that's the point. There's a long pause and there's nothing to fill in the blank. Jesus is pointing to the absolute obvious. When's the last time you went into a, like uh, out into a grove and said, oh, I know my trees really, really well. Like, so let me test your knowledge. Here we go. Jesus is going to point to a simple fruit tree. So, um, you can guess what kind of fruit tree is this? All right. So, if you and I, um, we've already talked about the, the the lottery this morning. So, let's just keep on gambling. So, let's just say that you and I are in a friend, friendly wager of sixteen quadrillion dollars. Right. And you were to wager your 16 kajillion dollars to know 100% what this blurry tree is, would you be able to say that's it? Nobody, right? Nobody. Okay, I'll give you another example. All right, I'm going to make it easy on you. Okay, so, y'all can't see. So, um, what, is, what, what are these trees? There's a grove of fruit trees. What are they? Come on, y'all. You don't know though. All right, I'll give you one more example. Here it is. This is a tree. Everybody knows this tree, right? Nobody, but you wouldn't wager on it, right? You wouldn't wager. You might guess, but you don't know. You don't know. These are just leaves on a tree. All right, you still have 16 kajillion dollars, right? And we're still making the same wager. Now, could you tell me what tree this is? pretty easy right like the others was like uh, i think that bark i mean i've seen the symmetricalness of that bark before and that leaf looks a little pointed but but this is super obvious these are these are these are i mean y'all didn't even i mean y'all didn't even hesitate Y'all just went right into the deep end like, uh uh-huh, I know my colors. I mean, we are talking on like a, your three-year-old knows the differences between apples and oranges and cherries and bananas because fruit is fruit. Jesus is pointing to a fruit tree and saying to us, this type of tree matters. And you should know a person like you know your tree." But in some ways, in some regards, it may or may not be as obvious. And so his last analogy, his last example should be piercing to us because it's so overly obvious. It's overly simple. He's used other fruit passages before. Jesus is a great wordsmith. And so we know these things. We hear in John 15, You hear probably one of the most famous uh, fruit passages. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser for every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away and every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes so that he will bear more fruit. He said this before. He's going to continue to repeat this over and over. Psalm 1, in the same way. In the same way, blessed is the man who, and then he says, is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. There's no doubt trees bear fruit. Bad trees bear fruit, good trees bear fruit, but fruit trees bear fruit. It is obvious to us. And then of course, to spiritualize it a lot is that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 tells us that this fruit can have some more obvious overtones of love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, we just, we know that this is how it is. Jesus is looking to the fruit of our lives and saying, is it that obvious? In the gospel of Luke alone, he uses the word Luke, or uses the word fruit in 142, 38, 39, 643, 644, 8, 8, 12, 17, 13, 6, 13, 7, 13, 9, 20, 10, and then again in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Over and over and over, he's saying this concept, Jesus is saying the fruit of your life matters. So what exactly are we supposed to go? Peach, orange, uh, I mean, what, what is this? Look at the very first word of our pericope today. It's the word for. And that word joins this segment to a previous segment. And what Jesus is doing, teaching you and I the upside down kingdom, what it's like to truly follow Jesus, we know that because of this speck and because of this log, this same reality, this same example is for your and my introspection. He's asking, is it obvious to those people around you who you are and in this life of introspection being able to say what am i what kind of tree am i not only does he say that the fruit matters but he also says that there is the opposite as well again you may not sense the humor right but there is this these pictures of this thorn bush or these brambles, right? What is a bramble bush? It simply looks like this. Unless you are a rabbit or something, you don't want to live here, right? But the picture is this for Jesus. Picture you and your spouse are getting your engagement pictures and you are in Florida and you're dressed in white linen and it's amazing. And the the, the backdrop of your your engagement pictures is a beautiful Florida uh, orange grove. So you're in white linen and all you see is this pop of color. And it's amazing, right? Every millennial here is like, okay, let me book a flight. It sounds great. What Jesus is saying is like, if you have these groves of beautiful oranges and you have these great, wonderful fields of trees and orchards and all of these things, there's no people who obviously and on purpose will walk through this to pick anything. It seems obvious, but he's saying in this one world, everybody understands this. But when there's thistles and thorns and brambles, no one voluntarily goes there because it's not good. Now let's talk about this word good versus bad. This bad fruit and this good fruit. It may mean quality, sure. But quality has a, a sense that it's rotten. So you had good fruit once and that it is now spoiled or rotten or it's in decay. That's not the case here. Instead, it's not good fruit that has turned bad. It's just by its very nature, it is worthless. So it's less about the quality of the fruit and the the fact that is it worthwhile? Is it helpful? Is it beneficial? And so there may be berries on this thorn, but no one is going to an orchard to pick this kind of berry because it's not helpful. It's not beneficial. So that is the idea of bad. Jesus is looking at these two fruits of your life. And he's saying, There are good and nutritious, and then there are some that are just not worthwhile at all. Which one are you? This is how he's ending the sermon. He's looking at who? Are the crowds there? Yes. But who does he have in his piercing eyes? Who is in focus? It's not the crowds. It's the disciples. It's not just the great disciples, but it's also the 12 apostles, why? He is hammering this type of analogy home for church people just like you and me. He's asking us after we've followed him, okay. So which one are you? Jesus takes this lesson from agriculture And he tells us truly what he's trying to say. It's not just about oranges and thorns, is it? It really has to do with our heart. It has to do with what's deep down in our heart fully and completely. Because he says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks." He is trying to teach his newly brand disciples that it's more than just following after me for miracles and food. He really is pressing in to change us completely. He's looking at the inner nature of our hearts and saying, Jesus has come to do that fully. He wants us to examine our inner character He wants us to know that our internal heart is what's going to produce the fruit. And if we don't analyze that first and foremost, we will be in trouble. This is the center of your life. This is the affection center of your life. This is where the Proverbs tells us to to guard it well and completely. Ezekiel tells us that when the Spirit of God comes, what does he do? What does the Spirit of God do? He gives us a brand new heart. He's changing our very nature. He's telling us the way that we were born looks more like thistles, and you can't expect anything out of those types of bushes and trees. And yet, when the Spirit of God comes, when the Spirit of God changes someone, He will change us from the inside out, fully and completely. But then He tells us something very sobering. You can't See someone's heart. You can't read somebody's heart. You can't judge somebody's heart. And so the most sobering reality is not just the heart, but He tells us where the fruit lies. It's in our words. For out of the abundance of our heart, that's where we will find it. We're new people. And so the fruit of our lives on the most fundamental basis are these things that come rolling off of our tongues because they were first in our heart. And what Jesus tells us is that our heart tells us our nature. We're either thorns or fruit trees. We can't change our nature. And that's why the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, those faithfulness, self-control. That's why that is, because that's the overflow of those words And yet there's a warning, not just for the worldwide people, church people, be careful, be careful. And the warning is that the types of words that you use really do reflect it. Set a guard, O Lord, over the mouth. Keep watch over the door of my life, the psalmist tells us. James tells us these words are flames, just a little bitty flame that will set the whole world on fire. Now, now let's look at the fruit of your life. Is there bitterness in your life? Do you spend your words tearing people down? Do you blame others? Do you have a critical nature? Because what Jesus is telling us in this analogy is that it's obvious, it's simple. We can squint when we see these trees without any fruit But the second we see the fruit, it's like, boom. And so the overly simplistic and the obvious nature of our teaching tells us that here lies the fruit of your life. Jesus cares very little about your religiosity and where you spend your Sundays, if it makes zero impact on the quality of your life and how you treat others with your words. And then also what you say about yourself And the types of truths that you will speak back to yourself found in your own emotions or in the power of God's word, our words truly do matter. Ezekiel tells us that we need a heart transplant. We need something to change us from the inside out. Ezekiel tells us that you cannot do this. You cannot will this on your own. Only the spirit of God can give you a new nature and can only change your words from the inside out. I was 18 years old. I was probably in an English class, probably failing it. I was definitely not paying attention. Went over the loudspeaker. It said, "Hey Spencer Teal, grab your stuff and come to the front office." Oh Gosh, what did I do now? You know, I want a bad kid. I want a great kid. I want a bad kid. But man, grab your stuff and come to the front office. Shoot, so I just started like going backwards. I like, oh, wouldn't have. I mean, I here I'll sheepishly, you know, walk into the front office, and what I found was not scorn on the other side of that um, the office, but instead sadness. My father had had a heart attack, and he was rushed to the ER. In fact, when I got to the hospital, I didn't even see him because they had cleared their schedule in order to get this guy on the operating table. He was fading fast. And so over the course of a day, I mean, this was back in the 90s, you know, those old dark ages, you know, where, you know, you, you know, like they just, I mean, I think he, they started his skull and ended up like opening all the way up, you know, all of these types of things. But he was in surgery all day long. When he came out, he definitely looked like death. He was swollen up and everything. It took, I mean, six weeks to put him all back together. He was just donezo. But the heart attack, the heart surgery is what captured my attention. You see, in that moment, his heart was telling him, hey, something was failing and it was impacting everything in his life. So much so that it dropped him to his knees. It made him incapacitated. He couldn't do it on his own. He needed somebody from the outside to actually help him live. What Jesus is trying to tell you and me today is that we need a heart transplant. We don't need to get our act together. You and I may feel like the Christian walk is like, yes sir, and just doing it, you know, like out of obligation, but it's out of the abundance of a brand new life. I just looked at the clock. It's 11. Woo, okay. Architecture, architecture. Here we go. There's agriculture. There's architecture. There's more, there's more analogies. There's more things. This time you moved from the organic, right? Maybe a seed. Maybe you can put it in the soil. Like, okay, but, you know, birds have been dropping seeds and planting themselves for eons. So he's moved from the organic to the thing that actually needs a little bit of gusto, a little bit of just muster up and good old elbow grease and hard work. And he talks about architecture. And he tells us, before he gets to the builder and this house, he tells us again hey, by the way, let me make it super, super obvious. Before he makes it obvious, he gives us one more slight, one more kind of like, by the way, religious people. You're on the clock here. You need to really listen to my words. He starts with what I call religious fervor. Why is that? Because he says, none of those who say Lord, Lord, right? And so he just, he kind of comes out with very religious language. The rabbinical uh, history tells us that when you repeat something twice, it's not just fervor, but it's for emphasis and also affection. It's not just Lord, but Lord, Lord means I really dig you. And so the people who are saying this phrase, these are the people that Jesus is warning. Guess what? These are the people that are in rooms like this, this morning. He's warning us. Not the crazies out there. The ones that are godless and cult. He is talking to us fully and completely. Not only is it just religious fervor with Lord, Lord, but look at this, um, transition. He says, all those who what? Come to me. Right? And then there's a comma. And then all those who not just come, but what's that next phrase? All those who hear my words. Guess who is in the proximity of his words? There's an entire crowd. Who knows how big it is? Those people have come to Jesus. Those people have come to hear Jesus. One more comma, one more reality. Not only those who come to me and hear my words, but who does them. The doers of the word. This is what new fellowship looks like. This is what discipleship looks like. Oh, religious people, who love Jesus and respect Jesus and hear Jesus's teachings. He's telling us it's it's not enough. A changed nature. That's the only thing that will count in this this reality is that not only we come, not only we hear but we become doers of the world, word. James tells us that we should do that as well. But so does the Old Testament And the same kind of passages that tell us that we need a new heart. And they came to you as people come and sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but, this is Ezekiel 33, but they do not do them for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are like them a sensual song by one who is beautiful, who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So in the same way that the fruit of your life are your words, so the structure of this architecture of your life is are you obeying the commands of Jesus? He exits you know, scene right and stage left or whatever, and he ascends into heaven. And some of the last words that we hear our Savior say is what? Go make disciples right, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The difference between a follower and a disciple is that we listen and then we obey Jesus's voice. It should be obvious, it should be simple. And so he gives these analogies and it's less about the the structure and more about the person. We see here that there are two different types of builders, one that goes down deep and builds a foundation and one that doesn't, just kind of builds it right there on the sand or what have you. So he tells us there's, there's two different types of builders and he tries to make it obvious to all of us. But I think what I want to bring to your attention is that it's a, the house is about to fall. We know the end of the story. But the analogy is not about the houses. And whether they stand or whether they fall, but of the builders and the type of prep that they make in their building. Sure, the crash, I mean, that gets all of the headlines. The winds blew yesterday and trees came down everywhere. That gets the headlines. We should be talking about trees that fell. We probably should be talking about roots that gave up the ghost. Here, we're not talking about houses that fall, but the builders that preceded them. While no one was watching, while no one was giving them accolades, while there was not one room that was painted, there was someone with a forethought to go down deep and underneath the earth where no one can see it, where there's no, like there's no glory down there, will build a foundation for it to either stand or fall so he does go to architecture and he says there are lots of ways that you can fall. Like if you've got a f- crumbling foundation, your house can sink, it can tilt, it can break. You do all of those things. So at some point the obvious is, is does your life look like this or not? Here's where I'd like to land the plane. That there's two different builders, but it's the same storm. two different houses, but it's the exact same storm. Jesus is telling us in a similar way of fruit and trees. It's, let's just look at the debris after a storm and I'll tell you who's following and who's a disciple because they're not the same. through the last crisis of your life, last storm that came ripping through your life, that upended you in a way that you will never forget. You've got the the scars and the stains to prove it. Don't look at the storm. Don't think about the cancer. Don't think about the lost job. Don't think about the person who left. Think about the aftermath. Think about after the storm. Think about the debris that was left. In your life, where were you standing? Who were you standing on? Jesus is saying, true discipleship is to follow after me and me only, to come, to hear, and then to, to do my words, because in your action, in your doing, not hearing, but in your doing, you will be have a firm foundation. These are Jesus' words, the second person of the Trinity, the one that would help sling the stars and invent gravity. He knows what the human condition will be. He wants it fully. And so brothers and sisters, my hope is built on nothing less. That's it. Nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust, and here's where the foundation matters, the sweetest of frames. I don't care how beautiful your house is, I don't care how beautiful Your life. I don't care how wonder. I'm not going to trust those temporary things, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock. I stand. All of the ground is sinking. Stand. All of the ground is sinking. Stand. And says, as we approach the communion table this morning, where are you? The storms are coming. Some of you already know that the storm has come and you're still here, right? At least you're here. We're still here and we're opening up our scriptures and we're saying, Lord, in the inkling of even my tattered life, I still trust in you fully and completely. We're about to sing these songs. I want you to sing them for real. I want you to just think about how God has sustained you through hardest part of your life and then say, do I trust you? So when you go to your communion table, this is what you're saying. It was supposed to sink. I was supposed to die. I was supposed to give up. I was supposed to have no hope. I was supposed to only trust in the things around me. But today, today, Lord, I trust in you and you alone. So there's bread back there that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And these juice— it's shed, or that stand for the uh, shed blood of Jesus for us. We want only those who are resting in Jesus' name that have their foundation on Jesus to come to those tables. Maybe you can't this morning. I'm not saying it's fine. We're not, there's not, no shame. Maybe you're saying that's just not where I am. But I would love to have a conversation. I'd love to learn more. If that's you, Just know that you're going to find me after the service. I'll be here for a while. You can find me. We'd love to share anything or what our hope is truly found on. So let me pray for us and then we'll partake in the Lord's table together. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Lord, I pray that that will be our testimony this morning. Because our life is fickle and our life is brief. And God, sometimes our belief in ourselves just will not do it. So help us, Lord, in your good name, help us to believe in you this morning. Holy and completely believe in you and you alone. So this table is for people who are disciples of you, who see this world and say, Lord, I follow you. And I want to obey your your word, no matter what, even if it leads to people reviling me. I want to follow you, no matter what. So, these table, Lord, is a table of remembrance and a table of joy, knowing that you have taken our place. And so, help us rejoice in that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, go ahead and stand to your feet, and just know that these tables are open. We would encourage all those who are putting their faith in Jesus. To come and partake now. So go ahead and stand. And these ta- the tables are open.